All right, I'll hit continue. I'm consenting. <laughs> I'm consenting to you recording me. I love the world we live in. <laughs> Thanks, Zoom. We have that on tape. <laughs> I'm leaving this in, by the way. This is too I good. hope you do. <laughs> What are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. You just don't know when to give up, do you? I need to do this all day. The Matt Sodnicker Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt Sodnikar. Thank you so much for listening. Your your texts, your tweets, your comments on everything mean a lot, and I appreciate it. And this uh, today's guest is another wonderful connection from my interview with Christine from a couple weeks ago. And I love interviewing everybody, but creatives in particular, because they make my intros and my questions so much easier. And so... Today's guest is a tea and polka dot junkie, a bulldog mama, passionate supporter of women's empowerment, but most of all, a storyteller. And with that, Sydney, Sid Hatch, welcome. Thanks for making the time. No, thank you. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to start with what you had created called Waste Books. Take me through that, because when we were talking a few weeks ago, this was uh, fascinating and amusing and stunning all in the same, uh, context. Well, thank you. That's very sweet of you, but I can't fully take a hundred percent credit. I worked on an amazing creative team, um, at the Senate, uh, and specifically Senator Flake's office. Um, I worked with a, a small team to put these together. Um, one of which is my dear friend, Roland. Um, And he was the brainchild behind researching these crazy and wacky things that were going on with taxpayer money. And, you know, luckily for me, I was in the, uh, the media office at that time. And, you know, between his skills of, you know, research and witty writing, you know, he connected with me in the, you know, the office and, Um, with the direction of the chief of staff and obviously the media director, like we kind of put this wacky idea together and it just really took off. It was something that um, honestly, the Senate media just looked forward to every, (laughs) every quarter when we'd put it out. And honestly, I take a lot of pride in it um, and what we were able to create as a team, because um, one of, you know, when you work in the government, you want to say you're going in and making a good impact and changing the world. And that's sometimes not always the case in every experience that you have on the Hill. Unfortunately, I'm not going to be a pessimist with government on this, but um, <laughs> we, I, I honestly take a lot of pride in this project because one of the waste books that we created was specifically looking at paid patriotism. And it was something that actually we were able to get banned and actually made positive change for the taxpayer in America. So we were really stoked. <laughs> So what is what is paid patriotism? I hadn't heard about it until or maybe I was aware of it, but didn't know it was titled as such. What was it? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it was wild. You know, we found again this one in particular, but obviously in some of the other waste books, we were just finding that there were all these crazy contracts and things that taxpayer money was going towards. And when it came to paid patriotism, specifically, our team found contracts between the Pentagon and pro sports teams that were intended to boost military recruitment and honor service members 
members, you know, at sporting events. And ultimately, it costs the government more than $10 million, actually, um, you know, doing these kind of paid patriot acts. So when you go to a sports game, you notice, you know, the national anthem or, you know, maybe a you know, uh, a, a service member is dropping down from, you know, mid, you know, ice break court and dropping the puck for the game, you know, as Americans, us being the patriotic people we are, we think, oh, that's so nice they're doing that. And that's a freebie thing. And that's super cool. And we found that that necessarily wasn't the case. And so we found 122 contracts worth of basically $1.4 million spent over a four year time that the Department of Defense uh, included, you know, basically basically 62% of those marketing contracts with five major sports leagues and correspondence. Um, and we basically were able to kind of say, wow, look at all these crazy things that taxpayers were paying for. So an example was we cataloged that $879,000 worth of taxpayer money was being spent by the Georgia um, Army National Guard with the Atlanta Falcons on color guard performances and video board tributes and you know 450,000 of that was spent in the same unit on the Atlanta Braves and so we found that you know that's kind of not cool, you know, and so we wanted to bring to light in a you know, in a, in a funny and positive way, like, you know, but we wanted to make it known to the American people of like, holy crap, like your money is being spent for things that you assume to be pretty free and patriotic and part of American culture. And so, um, you know, Senator Flake and Senator McCain, bless his soul, um, he, they were able to basically get um, banned spending taxpayer dollars towards these honorary ceremonies for veterans and active military members. Um, and that was a huge win because again, the NFL and other leagues were, at, you know, were kind of, again, some ways called out and they said, you know what? Yeah, we're going to pay back some of that taxpayer money that was spent on these things. And that was wrong. And so it's actually a banned thing now, which is pretty cool. <laughs> <clears throat> well, and the nuance to the discussion here, which I would imagine that there was, and only because I know this is the culture we're in. Yeah. I would imagine there was some blowback on that. But as you're oh, telling this yeah. story, it's not that you're against the military or honoring no. veterans. But as you say that, I'm not surprised that the National Guard and the military had to pay for that because mm -hmm. I kind of know how sports teams work. Yeah. They're a business, right? So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, but then as you describe it, it kind of, not kind of, it does bother me that somebody that's going to be center court and honored at a sporting event that the, their unit had to pay for that. That's, Hmm. I mean, these, I mean, here's the deal. I mean, <clears throat> these men and women lay down their lives for us to have the freedoms and the wonderful things that we have in this life. And, you know, again, I understand business, but there are definitely things that we shouldn't have to pay for. And that is honoring our military members. And, you know, you speak of uh, pushbacks and this is probably one of the shining jewels of my career. So as we're kind of putting out these contracts and if you look through the book, it's online. If you if anyone is interested, that's listening, you guys can see any of these online. They're PDFs, you know, that you can read through. You know, we basically designed each of these contracts to look like a, you know, a stats page from ESPN and stuff. And so we were able to like put down exact dollar amounts, what those dollar amounts were for. And we plastered all of these. <laughs> major league teams on there. So I laugh and the crowning jewel is this, you know, the Mavericks owner, Mark Cuban was on that list. 
we got the worst email from him upset out of his mind that we put this out there and let's just say that there was a beautiful email with a lot of um choice words on it (laughs) (laughs) but again we wanted to bring to light things that mattered and that was just one of them you know but uh you know we also did one it was called the farce awakens that kind of made fun of star wars Another one that I like is 20 questions, which is government studies that leave you scratching your head. And a lot of these were looking at the natural um, NHS funds that were kind of using taxpayer dollars towards scientific studies that kind of seem wacky. So it could be as crazy uh, as some of them featured were, you know, um, shrimp fight club. Um, There were how many? (laughs) Hold on just a second. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're not gonna drop that one and just oh I keep no going. I'll so, explain them I mean they were okay, okay, dinosaurs seeing you know how many shakes does a dog need to shake until they're fully dry and you know this this book particularly came out when Zika when the Zika outbreak was coming out and you know a lot of the time people were saying well we just don't have enough funding to research Zika and da 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 and so our big argument for the twenty questions book was you know we want to ensure that federal research dollars are better directed towards supporting transformative science while like rooting out unnecessary spending on lower priority projects. So like ultimately that book went towards the bill known as the Federal Research Transparency and Accountability Act, which is S2915, (laughs) you know, really (laughs) sexy government, you know, labeling there. But it basically, you know, sent a lot of recommendations to the federal government that like we need to set clearly defined national goals and objectives towards like federally funded research projects. So like, you know, things like Zika or COVID that come up, you know, we should have, you know, funds for those types of research projects, but yet we're spending it on shrimp fight club, you know, that it just like <laughs> the priorities are way off and we need to take a look at this because, you know, we have enough funding. We just need to make sure that we're being strategic as to how we're using it. That's a wonderful parameter or wonder, wonderful top level goal <clears throat> to, to do that. That makes a ton of sense. So what was the first rule of shrimp fight club? I know, <laughs> I know, right? It sounds crazy. And we always like, you know, it's funny. Our, this book particularly actually got featured on the Jimmy Kimmel show where, you know, it was basically, is it a indie band name or is it a scientific study, you know? And it was like, you know, sheep in retrograde and shrimp fight club. And so like people would vote, is it an indie name band or is it a, an actual study? And so going back to the original question, shrimp fight club was basically, again, um, we got a, ba- a bunch of backlash on making fun of a lot of these scientific projects, which I can go into after I explain it. But um, basically, we, the scientists in this study were looking at um, a specific type of shrimp and it, the name, you know, uh, is not in my head right now as to which shrimp it was, but there's a specific type of shrimp that has a really hard text uh, exterior. And so what they were doing is they were having these shrimp fight each other so they could study the toughness exterior of these shrimps so that they can um, put it towards like military type defense you know, items, if you will, and uh, improving them. And so, you know, did we kind of make it a fun read? Because again, the whole point of a lot of this was, if you look at the studies, if you look at, you know, the, the governmental 
taxpayer mumbo jumbo, it's pretty boring and no one's going to be interested in reading it. So really our whole point in like putting these in a kind of a, you know, a funny way was we wanted to bring interest to these things and make it so any type of, you know, American can be like, oh, I understand that or, oh, that's funny. And they're wanting to read it and inform themselves on these things that were happening. So. Well, and I didn't hear in any of these um, descriptions and as you're elaborating on the context of this, that you're the government spending police. It sounded like you just wanted to make it a better use of the taxpayers dollars. Exactly. And, you know, and again, the National Science Foundation, uh, which was where we were pulling a lot of these like 20 question studies, you know, they're the backbone of American science and engineering research, like for 60 years. So in no way are we, you know, making fun of them in a way where we don't think what they're doing is meaningful. But we we did want to, you know, because their biggest argument was you guys are taking this out of context and you're, you know, you guys aren't necessarily, you know, allowing us to really share. And what was really cool is when we had that feedback from them, Senator Flake actually set up a program for them to kind of showcase what their research was going towards. So there was a follow-up with this where, you know, we could kind of talk and learn about really what the science was and what the purpose was behind these. So there was a fairness there, which I appreciated as well. Well, it sounds like process improvement too. So, and, and the fact that you gave them the platform to talk about this, and describe what they're doing that's that's fascinating yeah it was a, it was a cool project and so i feel very spoiled that my senate experience was just like really fun i mean i i loved the team i worked with jason roland you know chandler elizabeth like the, we had a lot of fun <laughs> how did you get that gig you know um i originally started my career i love history Um, I'm a huge history nerd, um, and I got my degree at Brigham Young University, Idaho in history. And so I originally started my career as a history teacher in Virginia. Um, I realized I was a little bit too hippity dippity for that job. And so I figured, you know what, I'm going to go to Capitol Hill and make a difference. And so I started actually in my in my young years, if you will, um, as Senator Flake's front staff girl. I was like kind of the, hey, welcome to the senator's office. I'll get you checked in for the meetings. And eventually I worked my way up and they realized, wow, she's really good at photography. She's really good at writing. She has a really great creative mind. And so they gave me, again, I, I give them so much credit towards my my career of giving me that opportunity to develop and really work in that space. And so they were like, you know what, we want to put you in the press office. And like, I thank Jason and Senator Flake and Chandler for giving me that opportunity because from there, like that's where my creativity and being able to understand storytelling just really blew up. And it was just a blessing. I, that's all I could say. <laughs> <laughs> I love hearing stories about any kind of professional or career development and that it can happen in Washington is even uh, more fascinating to me. I have the complete outsider's perspective, but that's great that somebody took an interest. And uh, it goes back to my days as an engineer when the sales and marketing team were talking to me, but did did you believe you could do it when they started showing your career path? Was it something that you were gung ho to do? 
I mean, I'm a little, I was a little nervous, you know, because again, I was in my early twenties at the time. And again, what, what do you know as a 20, you know what I mean? Like, what do you really know? And, you know, and working, <laughs> <Nothing>. <laughs> exactly, you know, nothing. And so you're like faking it till you make it. Right. But, you know, there is one thing about life that I've come to realize is you can only really trust in yourself. And so for me, like knowing who I am, my skill set, my creativity, I know I can rise to any occasion and any project that's set up in front of me. Was there a huge learning curve? Absolutely. And they were patient and so wonderful and like getting me up to par as, you know, what to do, how to do it and everything. And again, like I, I thank them so much for giving me that opportunity. But, you know, I, I, I did have a unique skill set that I knew I could elevate, you know, the printed materials and, you know, using my design skills to really elevate what they were doing. I mean, I, I had a confidence in my ability to do that, but it was definitely, I mean, the pressure alone was something I had to get over because again, like you're writing press releases and you're creating content that's going to be out to basically good good morning America. And there was a lot of pressure that like, there was one time I remember Jason, I think, you know, just chewed me out where it was like, I had a typo or something. And I'm like, oh gosh, you know, like the anxiety. <laughs> I was just writing because, you know, like you send one tweet out and there's no editing in Twitter, you know? And so there was definitely like that pressure of like, you know, performance, but you know, I rose to the occasion and honestly, like, so, so grateful for that experience because it helped me elevate my expectations for myself and my work. And it really just defined my career and helped me really see the caliber of person I wanted to be in storytelling and in marketing. So how did you go from history to storytelling and your passion in photography? Was it something that was there? Or how, did, how did that blend? Yeah, I, it's a it's an interesting question. Um, I've always been a creative soul. Um, I've always kind of also gone to the beat of my own drum. Ask my mother; she'll be rolling her eyes as she listens to this. But um, you know, I've always been creative, and I always knew that I wanted to express myself that way throughout my life. And I think, you know, marketing does a lot in the fact that it really kind of marries the world of humans, which is like, for me, when it came to history, you're telling the story of humanity, you're telling the story of people and how they think and how they view the world. And then you had my creative side, which is I see the beauty and I see the world very differently, I think, than other people. Like I'm looking and watching people, not in like a creeper way, but like I like watching people as they experience the world. And are there little movie moments that no one else stopped to notice or things like that? I love seeing these intricate and intimate moments within people and noticing colors and design and experience. And I think, you know, having that passion and that way to view the world as well as, you know, just developing skills. I mean, when it came to the photography aspect, I always liked you know, taking photos, you know, as a child, I always wanted to be a superstar singer, <laughs> you know? Um, so I was never shy, but um, when it came to the photography piece in 2010, my parents got me a camera and uh, it was just like a crappy Sony, you know, like point and shoot. And they realized, oh, she takes actually some pretty interesting shots. So they upgraded me to a Sony DSLR. And this was an early, you know, college at this time. Um, and this was before my Senate career, but I, um, I, I decided, you know what, I, I can make money off of this. And, you know, during that time in my life too, I went through a really sad divorce. And so I was kind of left with nothing 
and I had to make something of myself like, you know, graduating early from college and, you know, making money and, you know, trying to figure out my life after that divorce. Um, I kind of had to pick myself up by the bootstraps and I was like, what skills do I have outside of what I'm building towards with my, you know, college career. And so I started to like do, you know, $5 photo shoots, you know, I, I made these little tiny like flyers as an early college kid saying, you know, hey, I know like, you know, a common thing is a lot of girls I noticed really like taking roommate pictures you know, something that they were doing on their little point and shoot, I could probably monetize that for like a, a, a little tiny, you know, fee and they, they get to be in the photo and they don't have to set self timers. So I put out little flyers and slowly, but surely people were booking me with $5. And it was like one of these like <laughs> sad experiences of like going from $5 to, you know, booking weddings at a higher rate. And, uh, but it was one of those things where, you know, it was the early 2000s bloggers were really big. And so I took all of the time I could in developing that skill by reading blogs and, you know, just going out and shooting. And luckily I was able to develop a skill from it where I was booking weddings in Idaho and Las Vegas and California and Utah. And then, I mean, I like love stories obviously, but you know, I found that my passion is really wanting to tell the stories of people and like individuals and taking it to a more elevated place. And that's where I kind of developed my skill when I moved to DC and I was on Capitol Hill, I realized, wow, there's a lot of women that have a lot of um, side businesses and things that they're doing individually, or there's a lot of fashion bloggers that are popping up in DC. You know, is anyone taking their photos, you know? And mm. I started to monetize working with these women that had these kind of, you know, exposable incomes, you know? And uh, I kind of made a name for myself working with like fashion influencers in DC and like women that were, you know, kind of doing their own side hustles and doing their own businesses and realizing that, you know, DC is a wonderful place. It's a full of smart people, but there aren't a ton of creative people. And so people will pay top huh. dollar to do the creative things. And so I made a really good name for myself with the, the photography in DC. So a couple of questions here, yeah. <clears throat> and I love that whole story. So when you're going through the divorce and the, understanding that photography and the camera is your creative outlet, mm -hmm. and when you were experiencing the, the depths of that and you said it was very sad, did it affect what you shot through the camera? Did you see things differently in that moment? You know, that's an interesting question because like, I'm sure, you know, we've shared that you've been divorced previously as well. Like there is a deep sadness, no matter the situation, right? Like there's sadness, there's mourning, there's things that are going on that are beyond whose fault was it or whatever, right? It's just a very emotional process. And um, I found that, you know, divorce really helped me. I'm, I'm already a very kind person. I, I pride myself in being a warm, fuzzy person that really takes interest in people. But I think my divorce took me that much further into seeing people. Like I hmm. saw people for who they were at their core and wanting to capture that. Like for me, you know, divorce made me a very empathetic person because at, at that point in my life, there were moments where I didn't really want to be around anymore. And there were times that I was in a really deep despair and I knew what it was like to feel very low. I knew what it was like to feel alone. I felt, you know, I knew what it was like to feel forgotten. And it was my life goal after that point of, I know what that's like and I don't want anyone else in my vicinity 
vicinity or in my circle of influence to ever feel that way because that is not life. That is not who people should be. That is not how human interactions should be. And so I think that affected me to really ask the right questions of my clients before we shot saying, you know, what do you want these pictures to represent? What are you, what, it, what are things you like about yourself that you want to come through these photos? And I think it was kind of, you know, getting past the superficial. I take a lot of pride in any project that I do when it comes to marketing, when it comes to photography, whatever I'm doing creatively, I take a lot of pride in getting down to the why and the emotion and the person so I can have a better understanding to how to better represent them. And so I think my divorce and in that time it kind of really helped me hone in my deeper feelings of empathy and seeing people and using that in my work was there a photo <clears throat> excuse me that you took from that time that would capture how you felt i'm sure there is <laughs> i'm sure there is somewhere i took a lot of photos during that time you know, I think, yes. I mean, I think there's a couple of like, you know, weddings where I think in my time, I'm like, I wish that was my life. And I think there were some mm. beautiful moments of love that I'm like, you know what, they get it or they have that. And that's something that I'm like, I hope I have that one day. Um, or, you know, I know that there were women that I worked with that, you know, I think I saw myself and who I wanted to be in a lot of these successful women I worked with, but there were definitely moments where I was like, you know what, that, that got me through. That was a really cool shot. And I'm really jazzed that people are, you know, really kind of winning at life and they're following their dreams. Like I, I tell you, and I think I've told Christine this as well, but I like to say my I, I'm kind of like the American dream maker like I I think with my work I help people make their dreams make their jobs making their you know vision for life come true and I'm that supportive role in helping them get there and telling their story in a creative way and really kind of seeing their why and helping them tell that through content on their website or social media or whatever like for me life is all about that emotional connection can you relate and I think that yeah, I don't know if that makes sense, but you know. <laughs> no, it totally does. And I was just thinking about uh, you know, Taylor Swift pops to mind, right? Where oh, she no. goes through a breakup and don't bring I'm... Taylor into this. I hate Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> and that's fine too. <laughs> hate me. I know. Popular opinion, unpopular <clears throat> opinion, but But uh, you know, as a creative outlet, I was just curious if the emotion that you're experiencing affected your work. And, and I was just fascinated by that. Yeah. You ask good questions. I will say that. <laughs> <laughs> Putting me on the spot of Dean thinking here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That, that is uh, that's a high compliment. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, so storytelling, and this is for my education, what, makes a good story you know there's a lot of elements to that question we'll have to unpack i mean obviously it depends on industry right and there's definitely elements in every industry that are going to be important to incorporate and adding adding some street cred if you will um but I think <laughs> it's true you gotta have street cred right um but a good story. I mean, I one of my mottos, I think, in marketing when I sit down with clients initially for consultations and things like that is helpful is the new viral for me. I think we live in a world where people are constantly looking for solutions, right? Whether it's 
I need some acne treatment. Can your, you know, beauty company help me? Or, I mean, even looking at like the political world we live in, like people are trying to find solutions. People are trying to find relief from the things around them, the problems they're having in life and things that they're looking for, for fulfillment, solutions, things like that. And so I think a storytelling to me is kind of providing those solutions for your audience, right? So how can you be part of the solution in their life? How can you be helpful? Because if you're being helpful and you're providing solutions and you're making people's lives easier and giving them ways to, you know, hack away at some things that maybe they're having issues with, there's a reason that they'll come back, right? They'll be like, oh, you know what? Like that was such a helpful post or that was a really interesting blog post. They get it, right? Um, I think if we, if as, as a business or as an individual, if you can be helpful and if you can provide solutions in a world that kind of, again, seems pretty chaotic to me, that is a good storytelling. It's creating that realness because again, as much as I love social media, I think it's been a beautiful connector of people. I've made tons of friends through Instagram and things like yeah, that. And it's super weird, but it's super cool at the same time. Although that's a beautiful aspect of social media. I think it's really desensitized us to really feeling and understanding each other. And I think if you can step back and say, how can I storytell so there's a human connection again in a way that's tangible and helpful and interesting. And it's not just a basic thing. Like <laughs> I love my dog and I love my Starbucks, you know, pumpkin latte, right? Like we've had enough of that. We've had enough of like booty, you know, poolside shots from people. We've had enough, like we're, we're ready to break it down and be real and not have as much curation. Like we've had curation. I think people are wanting to have that human interaction again. So if, you know, that's a, that's a general blanket statement of what I think good storytelling is today. Yeah. And I, I, from my perspective, being a self-taught marketer and, and same thing on the design side, I'm not so much a skilled creator, mm -hmm. but I can see things that just don't land correctly where something's a bit off. It's either trying too hard or it misses the mark and it doesn't take me on an emotional journey. And I understand mm -hmm. that people are very different. So I'm not saying yeah. that my perspective has to be the only way, but you're right. Like I, I like things that unfold and that are genuine and, and thoughtful. It's not so sexy. Right. It's seeing beyond the sale. It's, it's making that connection first and then saying, Oh, you know what? I got you hooked. Here's some things that I know will help you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> My dream job <clears throat> is to have like a seventh floor office with floor to ceiling windows and a sofa. And I basically just hang out and nap and don't do anything until somebody comes to me with an ad campaign. <laughs> and I say, okay, it's going to be $20,000. And I'm gonna look at this and I'm going to tell you that this is going to be a disaster. <laughs> and if <laughs> and if you choose to ignore me, that's fine. It's $5,000, but I want you to sign this waiver and <clears throat> I get to tell future clients that you ignored me. So like all these things that just crash into mountains, right? Like I look at that. I was like, you didn't, 
you didn't search urban dictionary for this term that you used or you didn't do this it's like and then i make money either way and i help the company and then protect them from making stupid mistakes that usually are a blend of them trying to be clever or funny which is so hard to do <laughs> but i will say there is space for that because like for me again as much as you know how many articles are out there would be like i have the secret solution for marketing success right like there's hundreds of articles there's hundreds of like online gurus if you will that are like oh you make 600 you know six hundred thousand within your first year right like we we see those people right and I don't want to discredit them because I'm sure they are helpful to some extent, right? They, they can provide some basic, you know, flowery content ideas where it's like, well, duh, I know that, you know, but there is something to marketing where there is that, again, like you said, this probably is going to suck, but it might also might not. Like there is a little bit of a trial and error with marketing, but sure. it is interesting because like although that's true there are definitely mistakes now that i think you have to be careful just because of the climate in which we live in and there's been like a couple blunders within this past year where i like literally smack myself on like the forehead and be like who what were you what was your team thinking <laughs> that was not oh, you can join get, my firm i get what you were trying to do <laughs> but like woof you know it was maybe not as well received, but again, like there is that trade-off well, because how many irreverent campaigns go out now where it's funny and people are like, ha I get that. But how easy could that have been shot down? You know, but it's, again, it's that trial and error, you know, what was one that leapt to mind when you were talking about that from the past year? Do you remember? Oh man, I don't want to throw people under the bus, but I mean, <laughs> here's the deal. I live in Utah. You can Okay, you can give the uh, maybe not the product name, but yeah, the yeah, I'll, gist I'll, of I'll leave. I mean, anyone in living in Utah will know who I'm talking about. But again, you know, it is what it is. So, um, there was a campaign that was done here in Utah, and again, Utah is a wonderful place. I've lived here for the past three years, but again, going from DC to here, definitely not as diverse. Definitely not on the same caliber of like being able to understand marketing across you know, different genders, different orientations, different, you know, types of people, if you will. And there was one fashion brand here in Utah that is very well known. And they made a campaign of, you know, basically trying to speak to Black Lives Matter and like kind of this diversity kind of market, if you will, because again, people very much care about social issues when they shop now. Um, but they didn't do it in a way that was very authentic. And a lot of Utah brands, you know, although Utah is very, a, a very unique place because it's a place for marketers. Like we have mommy bloggers up the wazoo. We have very big, you know, fashion bloggers. Like Utah is known for content creation. I mean, it's a, it's this little booming metropolis of, you know, content creation. But unfortunately, it's kind of one dimensional in the fact that most of them are blonde women and there's a very specific look about them, right? Oh. So when, you know, these companies that are here and they're based in that type of environment, they, they were trying to throw some bones out to the Black Lives Matter community and things like that. And so they were randomly featuring, you know, African-American women wearing their product. And unfortunately, like I get that they were trying to be, you know, inclusive, but a lot of people felt like that was ingenuine because up until that point, they have not featured women of color at really at all. I mean, there might be some offshoots here and there, but across the board, it was pretty much 
white blonde and maybe you know a couple brunettes thrown in there but it was mostly blonde white women and so there was tons and i remember you know i follow them because i i personally like their brand you know i i wear their things and things like that but i remember looking at some of their ads and some of the comments they were getting blown up like this is super super ingenuine like this is not real like this you know and they were just getting ripped to shreds and i'm like Whoa! <laughs> I should have thought ahead on how that's important to people, you know, as, especially because people are moving to Utah and Utah's changing. You know, that's something that people, especially businesses here in Utah, which Utah's a very entrepreneurial state, it's a, a thing that they're going to really have to integrate if they're going to be successful moving forward. Utah's wonderful. I love it. It is. Visiting. It's so beautiful. Yeah. yeah and people just, they, they kind of know it's hard to quantify, but they can. I don't want to call that campaign pandering, but it's just sort of like, oh, everybody's doing this. We should probably do something. But right? here's the thing. Like people are tired of being bullcrapped on social media with businesses. So like they'll call you out for it now. And that's like the very dangerous thing with businesses is you have to really think through campaigns. And so, yeah, it's a crazy world we live in. I mean, it's great <laughs> because I think diversity and inclusion very much matters because again, for a very long time, People weren't, you know, people want to see themselves in the products that they buy, right? And that's in, you know, visuals and in campaigns and, you know, with ads and things like that. And so I think it's been a wonderful experiences, experience for businesses to be able to really harness that more genuinely. But there definitely is like a process in which you probably need to do that best. But I'll ask you this, because you're a cam, you know, a marketing guy yourself in some ways. Has there been a campaign that you have very much liked or you very much remembered? And why was that? <clears throat> oh, it's been years since I've had cable and so commercials. It's been so long since I've seen commercials that when I do see network TV, um, it's commercials are almost fresh to me now. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a great question. Let me think. But about... I mean, it doesn't even have to be TV. It could be like a social ad or, you know something you saw from a business that you're like, wow, that was really clever. And that makes me want to buy it. Like when was the last time you were actually swayed by a marketing campaign? Cause I always find that that's an interesting question as to like what hooked someone, because it's interesting to hear what people have to say. Oh, um, I'm going to ponder that. Cause there's one that is coming. It's kind of fuzzy right now, but there's one that I want to think of. And I can't recall it now, but I'll, I'll think of it. I'll like sub process it while we're talking and, and I'll get back to you because th there have been some that are <clears throat> well-written emails or there's pop-up ads or, you know, other things like websites that have had an impact. Mm -hmm. And, but going back to your point, it's, they're answering the why, why they, why they exist and why should I care? That's, that's the origin of it. Mm -hmm. Man, I'm really trying to think about. I know you're, it's always hard. It's like when people ask, what's your favorite movie? You're like, I'm having a brain fart. I like, I love movies <laughs> and I know I like them. I don't know which one I want to say right now. It, and it's too hard to, to call that out because are we talking comedies? <laughs> are we talking documentaries? Are we talking oh, I know. about. I'm a you movie know, buff, so I, I get that life. I get that struggle. <laughs> <laughs> like which category are you asking? <laughs> So this question won't be really any easier. So as a, as a history person, is there a favorite period you have in history that you know, time machine, magic wand, you could 
experience or one that you just enjoy reading and learning about? Two come to mind that I absolutely love. I love anything ancient Egypt. When I was a little kid, you know, when your parents finally allow you to pick out your own storybook. (laughs) My first book that I picked out for myself was an encyclopedia of ancient Egypt and just a fascinating civilization, just so beyond their time. Art, just everything is just stunning to me about that culture. Um, So that is definitely one, Um, but when it comes to American history, I very much love um, the Industrial Revolution and the time of the Robert Barons and things like that. But if I really was very specific, I'm a huge Teddy Roosevelt fan. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I like fangirl I, I over him so hard because what a really interesting person and like geeking out history stuff. Like my favorite political election was the 1912 election because he split the Republican vote and basically made the bull moose party. And that's why, you know, <laughs> that went to crap. It just it was just an interesting political um, time you know, and he's just such a charismatic person that really redefined the presidential, um, you know, role from like then onward when it came to like media relationships, like, you know, what the president's roles are and just looking at the national parks, just he was a fascinating person. I totally agree. One of his quotes, and I'm going to have to paraphrase it because I don't have it remembered or memorized, excuse me, but he was saying that it's essentially the the man in the arena quote mm-hmm. where it's better to be bloodied and knocked down and fail than to be a spectator and never try. And Absolutely. it that always stuck with me. Yeah. I mean, and he had so many moments where he had to get back up throughout his life, whether it was, you know, his first wife dying, you know, giving birth to their first child, Alice, to you know, after that, he had a very sad traumatic and on that day, he actually lost his mother and his wife. So two huge losses. And like one of the sweetest letters, you know, I actually, for one of my like me trips, I went to New York city and saw the house that he was born in. And there's this whole, like, you know, exhibit in that home of him. And I saw like the beautiful, you know, handmanship or handwriting that he had where, um, the light of my life is gone. And that was like the letter that he wrote about that day. And, you know, and after that, he goes and goes out west and leaves Alice behind to be raised by his sister. And he starts to try to be a cattle rancher and then that fails. And he's been a failed business owner multiple times. And then, you know, all the political stuff and then going to Africa and being like, Taft, you're not doing it the way I want to. So I'm coming back. Like, it's just, you know, it's just crazy. (laughs) So (laughs) colorful. And I love it. And he also had so many great, like, one-liner names that he would say like in the senate where he would call people things and it's not like curse words but it was like really witty things i can't think of any but off the top of my head right now but he just had a lot of swag for that time (laughs) (laughs) but also a super accomplished guy i mean police commissioner president you know just cool guy do me a favor if there's books on him that you could recommend just shoot those over i'm not going to put you on the spot to remember those but the I would lion love... in the white house gives a beautiful like overview of his life so that'd be a lion in the white house lion in the white house so i will send you that one and then i'll send you a bunch of other ones that are like specific offshoots of like different times of his life but okay he goes and visits the amazon and all you know all the things but it's pretty fun oh i remembered the campaign yes that i liked <laughs> 
What is and it? This Lay was, it on. This me. was actually when I was in Utah last week. Nice. I was at um, in Holiday. There's this uh, high end deli, and I went mm-hmm. in to pick up a sandwich order. And oh, so in terms of marketing, they are brilliant because they line you through to get to the register through the chocolate aisle. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so love that. Um, I am a victim of impulse buying and marketing. And so I saw these uh, chocolate coated almonds <laughs> from Switzerland or Sweden or something. No mm-hmm. price tag on them. Uh, guess of how course. much a box of these almonds were. Just go ahead and just fashion a guess, hazard a guess. I, I don't even know because sometimes I'm like, oh man, do I actually want to buy these bags of almonds already? So assuming it's more than that, like dread of buying dried, you know, nuts and stuff, you're like, oh gosh. So what is it? I mean, $29. Woof, <laughs> and so, did you buy it? Did you buy it? Did you get snookered? Well, I'm not going to get out of line and go back and go, these are too expensive. <laughs> Uh, of course I walked out with them. I was humiliated. I was like, of course I can afford $30 <laughs> almonds. But um, Do they actually taste that much better than like buying no, them at No. No. To me, those were $5 chocolate almonds. They did not blow me it's away. It's all about that branding, man. It's all about that <clears throat> yeah. branding. <laughs> but that wasn't the campaign that stuck. So next to them, there was a smaller box at a more reasonable price that was yeah, two dollars. Yeah, and the name of this brand was called Trash Nuts. And like so, it. I looked at them, and I, I just thought it was clever. It's a black little little tiny box and just black and white packaging. And what caught my eye was on the front, they had quotes like one star reviews from people that hated the products. <laughs> I love myself a good craft disturber marketer. I'm like, you know what? Like, screw the industry. I'm going to do like complete opposite. I respect that. That's awesome. I got to meet these guys, but I bought those because they were just hilarious. And they said, you know, please, if you hate our product review, it might put you on the box. And so they had these things taste like crap. And they had the story because they're they're called trash nuts because the dude had a 55 gallon trash can that he just roasted the almonds in there. And that's amazing. That's And so they don't taste like uh, blue diamond smokehouse almonds. Yeah. They have a distinctive flavor and they were good. It was like, that's just some intent and it's real. And I just, those are the campaigns that resonate with me. Yeah. I like the ones that make you smile and you're like, ha, that's pretty funny or hey that's pretty witty because you do remember them you want to be memorable but not every brand's going to be you know zesty like that if you will so there's a time and place but hey you can do it well you do it well (laughs) yeah xerox and ibm can't do that but a small (laughs) no no. small (laughs) nut company can (laughs) i'd be shocked (laughs) imagine So if if people need help with storytelling and marketing and that, where can where can people find you? And I'll uh, I'll link all this in the show yeah, notes. No, thank you. Um, thanks for that shout out, if you will. So um, my my business is called the Girl Who Brands. Um, it's very straightforward. 
it's just the girl who brands.com. I have Instagram, I have my website um, and find me on LinkedIn or, you know, whatever, but yeah, it's a pretty simple name. I just wanted to be direct. Also, I got a little bit of inspiration from Chance the Rapper, who I love. So Chance the Rapper, huh? the girl who brands. So I, I wanted to be kind of just very straightforward. I think sometimes people try to get too flowery these days where they try to come up with something witty. And I'm like, you know what? I am who I am. I brand people. It's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Don't overthink it. Exactly. One Keep of it my... simple, stupid, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Sid, this has been great. I, I knew it was going to be an awesome story and, and thank you for uh, telling it. Of course. No, thanks for having me. And hopefully there was little tidbits of helpful things. If not, like, I guess you have blog posts for that or whatever, but. <laughs> oh, it totally time. was. Just the creativity. Pickles. Yes, for sure. Episodes of this podcast are produced and written by me, Matt Sodnikar. The intro was engineered by good friend Cole Weinman. And our original score theme song, Retro Funk, was composed by previous guest and good friend Randy Wiafe. I also have two requests. If you like this show, please share it with a friend who you think might like it. And also take the time to show them how to listen to a podcast, either on Apple transistor or spotify and i know you know somebody out there that would make a fantastic guest and if you do please shoot me an email to podcast at thewarmfront.com thanks for listening